This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show where we're featuring a leading voice in the national conversation on fighting sexual misconduct, gender inequity, and discrimination, fueled by over 30 years of high-level private practice and exceptional public service. Tina Chen, our guest today, heads law firm Buckley Chandler Chicago office, where she's a partner and leader of their workplace cultural compliance practice. They counsel companies on issues related to gender inequity, sexual harassment, and lack of diversity in the workplace. On the public side, Tina served as an assistant to President Obama, executive director to the White House Council on Women and Girls, and chief of staff to First Lady Michelle Obama. She worked on Title IX initiatives and was instrumental in the formation of the White House Task Force to protect students from sexual assault. In her time since she left the White House, she's been a major force at the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, which provides legal support to women and men who have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace. So I'm trusting that you can understand why we are thrilled and honored to have Tina with us here today. So Tina, welcome to Women at Work. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So as I read through this overly simplified summary of your work, there's a common thread of advancing and protecting opportunity, particularly for women and girls. What puts you on that path? How this become such a central theme? Well, you know, it actually goes, we're sitting on a college campus, so I'm having a little college nostalgia. Uh, but it, you know, it got, does go back to college. I was, you know, a Harvard undergrad in the 70s, studied, you know, um, sociology and did, you know, you know, net social movement change at one point. So you were motivated early on yeah, to yeah. wonder how to change things. A little bit. Well, it, it were, I did that as a field of study. And then very quickly after I graduated in 1978, got married, moved to Springfield, Illinois to work for state government. But coincidentally, it was right that year. If you'll remember, there's only some of us who are old <laughs> enough now to remember. In 1978, it was the year that the extension for passage of the Equal Rights Amendment to become part of the U.S. Constitution had been passed. You know, we had, you know, we were three shy of the number of states needed. I know. So close, yeah. but so far. And Congress passed a three-year extension from 1978 to 1981 to get the last remaining three states Illinois was the only northern industrial state that had not ratified the ERA. And I used to say never ratified until they just ratified it six months ago. A little late, guys, but they did ratify <laughs> it about just earlier this spring. They ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. But at the time, they were the linchpin to get three southern, you know, two more southern states as well. And we were the hotbed in Springfield, Illinois, of all places, of national feminist activity. We had nuns on hunger strike and people chaining themselves to the doors of the General Assembly and pretty heady stuff for a recent graduate yes. from college. And that really did, I think, plant the seed of activism, of women's rights, and it's kind of carried through the rest of my life. At a moment like that, there's both the 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 awareness of what you want to make happen, what you want to change, and also the question of can you affect change? How did those two things reside inside of you? Well, you know, again, dialing back to the 20-year-old me, um, I don't think that the barrier part is something you know when you're 20, right? <laughs> you know, you think anything's possible. Of course we're going to win this. Uh, so I do think at the time when we lost it in 1981, it was... You know, it's pretty disappointing. We really did. You know, we had all we were hundreds of thousands of people marching in this focal point. And, you know, and it was surprising. I also will say that I don't think I had stared gender discrimination in the face in quite the same way as I had with the kinds of speeches. You know, we don't want our young girls going off to war. We, you know, don't, you know, the the, the kinds of things that got talked about. Um, it then fueled, I mean, the, the coda to that was the very next year. So I went to law school then. 
um, in Chicago at Northwestern, was still an officer for the National Organization for Women in Illinois, and in that capacity worked together with the Illinois Coalition Against Sexual Assault and you know four other activists who now are my lifelong dearest friends, the six of us. And we rewrote Illinois' rape laws, which were some of the most archaic at the time. What did you need to change? Well, Illinois back then was one of only one or two states that still used what was the old Blackstone legal definition of rape, meaning rape was by a man against a woman, so it could only be by man against a woman. Uh, the man had to be over 14 years old, and it had to be by force and against her will. The most archaic definition possible of rape um, so it didn't take into account same-sex mm-hmm. rape. It didn't take into account that actually someone under 14 is could capable, rape, uh, capable yeah. of raping someone. The stories that we heard at the time was that was actually known on the streets and part of a gang initiation right for kids under 14 was to rape someone because they couldn't be held accountable for a class X felony. Uh, so we took about, you know, the year after we lost the ERA, worked with a wonderful, wonderful woman, State Senator Dawn Clark Nitch, who subsequently became our first ever elected statewide Illinois officer, Illinois comptroller, and then ultimately ran for governor. Um, she was our sponsor, and we rewrote those laws and actually passed them out of the Illinois General, General Assembly, had them made law. But, you know, we also, for example, dealt with it had to be, rape had to be against a woman, not his wife. So the concept of marital rape was not in the law, and we actually had these unbelievable conversations in the committee hearings of people saying, really? Can a man really wait, rape his wife? Yeah, really? Really? Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, and so, you know, that that was, again, my 20-something me really seeing the face of gender discrimination. What's um, interesting and in some ways reassuring was that you weren't feeling it in your personal life, but you were seeing it on this public arena. You were seeing it in our society, and you were also seeing it from a vantage point where you could start to address it through policy. Exactly. Exactly. And so um, that drive to change things through policy, how do you connect what you're doing um, through those processes um, with how it gets down to people on an everyday basis? That's an interesting question. You know, I mean, that's one of the things we thought about in the White House a lot, right? Um, And that's one of the things I think President and Mrs. Obama were very focused on because they would always, if the rest of us got too policy wonky, you know, and and, and, and technical, you know, at some point, one of the two of them, and Mrs. Obama in particular, was always really good at saying, and really, what would that mean for people? (laughs) You know, when we started our Joining Forces Initiative for veterans and military families, you know, we really didn't want it to be just a yellow ribbon feel-good campaign. And her test really was, whatever we do, then I want people on the ground to feel it. I want a military spouse to tell me that she is feeling the difference of what we, you know, uh, are doing. And and, and it's important because you can lose it. You know, you you can lose that perspective when you're trying to do good. You can really lose perspective when you make policy and you have no awareness of the bad things, you know, the the bad consequences that will happen for people on the ground. And I think it's also something that happens whether you're in public service or private practice, that once you become part of a large system, people become – they can become numbers. They can become invisible. Um, the bureaucracy has its function. Right. But it can also insulate you from them. No, that's – no, that's exactly the case. And – Again, I saw it a lot in the White House. You know, it is a bubble. You know, the White House bubble is real. The Washington bubble, more writ large, is real. Um, Real people, as we used to call them. (laughs) You had to make a point of making sure... Do we have enough real people? In, in it's the, like sometimes in the I have to go find real food, but you have to make sure you're finding real, real people. people. Um, so, went, and that meant your average person, you know, who's going to be affected by the policies. So, we always made a point if we were going to do a bill signing or if we were going to actually have an event to promote a policy, that we wanted the people who were actually affected by those policies to be there. I'll never forget we we passed very early on in the administration, you know, one of the um, bills that actually for the first time. Brought water to Native American lands. Like it's the 21st century and we have parts of our country that do not have running water, most particularly on Native American reservations. 
And um, we brought, you know, these amazing leaders from that tribe in to talk about the fact that they just didn't have basic water. But it's that kind of thing that makes policy real and live. And I think it's so important to always do that. Storytelling was a lot of what we talked about doing is making sure you can make, you know, come alive what is a wonky policy issue. How much of that is about helping people understand it and connect it in ways that feel real at home? And how much of it about is informing the way that you build policy? Well, it's both. It's both. I mean, we made a point, you know, in developing policy to talk to the people who would be affected because, you know, healthcare is a perfect example. You know, there's a lot really complex, very wonky, but you also have to understand what are people's actual experiences in trying to access healthcare, you know, in trying to access birth control, in trying to deal with pre existing conditions to really understand what are the best policy solutions. Sometimes, you know, you come up with things that don't exactly quite work when they're really put in practice by right. someone and you need to you need to understand that. By the way, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking this hour with Tina Chen, partner at the Chicago law firm, Buckley Chandler, former chief of staff to Michelle Obama, among her many other distinguished positions. So, Tina, you mentioned something earlier um, that I think would surprise a lot of people about the ERA. That it's not um, dead and buried with the 70s, that uh, it's still being discussed. Why did it just come up for a vote in Illinois? And why did it finally pass? Well, there is a new, uh, you know, wave coming. You know, I don't know if this makes us the fourth wave <laughs> or the fifth wave of, of the feminist movement. But there is a or new... Or an ongoing wave. Ongoing wave. wave. You know, there is, you know, and now for the last several years, you know, equal rights advocates and some other folks have been pushing an idea that we should go back to making sure the Equal Rights Amendment is a part of it. There's a lot of debate. I mean, a lot of people will say, you know, it's been 40 years and you have things like Title IX and you have Roe versus Wade and you have, you know, we've advanced a lot. But aren't many of those remedies for the absence of the ERA? Well, they are. They're A, both for the absence, B, and we now see it in some of the current debate about whether some of these things will change or whether they can be statutorily changed or overturned. And the only way to make sure gender discrimination is embedded um, in the Constitution and not overturned is to embed it, the very words, in the Constitution, which is what the Equal Rights Amendment would do, rather than having it be by extension as something outside of the 14th Amendment on equal protection generally. Um, and also, interestingly, I learned this at the White House, too, because I hadn't done a lot of foreign policy before mm-hmm. I got to the White House. But, you know, we tout ourselves as the rights, you know, advocate of the world. And um, we advocate for women's rights around the world. And yet I have had this conversation. I've been in an African country where they look at me and they say, well, you know, we have gender equality in our constitution. And we have in our constitution a requirement that 50% of our legislature is women. So there's and both they, the quota and the explicit yeah, protection. Yeah, this is a conversation I had in Tanzania. And so then they look at me. And what's your answer, right? And we not only do we not have the 50-50, which would be hard under our our jurisprudence, but we don't really basically have a protection against gender discrimination explicit in our Constitution. And so it is a little hard to go around the world and advocate for things like adolescent girls' education and the elimination of child marriage and, you know, and then come back home and say, well, but we don't even have basic protections under our Constitution. Right. The the um, volume of our voice gets diminished when we're not backing it up at home. That's right. That's right. So another one of your big project is the Time's Up movement and Time's Up Fund in right. particular. The Legal Defense Fund. So I remember when it was first launched and we saw it, you know, Thrilled to watch the Oscars, see the buttons on everybody's chest. My daughter and I were watching, how are the donations? Are they coming in? Are they coming (laughs) in? At the time, I think we did a show the next Wednesday. It was at $6 As of this morning, it's exceeded $22 million of donations. It has. So talk to me about what does that money go towards? So the Times Up Legal Defense Fund is housed at the National Women's Law Center, which I have to give real kudos to for taking it on. It is an amazing organization. Amazing. 45-year-old women's rights organization. And they took this brand new project on very quickly last fall when we came up with the idea. And um, it's really to support individuals who have claims of sexual harassment and can't afford to find a lawyer or also people who are speaking out 
about sexual harassment they've experienced at work and are being threatened or actually sued, for example, for defamation, which has started to happen. You know, And we actually have live cases of the rich and powerful people who have been accused who are suing the women who have come forward to talk about the abuse that they've suffered many years ago. Um, so the Legal Defense Fund is there both to provide lawyers. So we have over 800 lawyers who have volunteered to provide their services at no cost or low cost. And then these funds to help support paying for the cases. Now, anybody who's paid legal fees knows $21 million doesn't go that far, (laughs) especially when we've had over 3,500 requests for help since January 1st. So talk to me about who's asking for help. What's the process? How do you decide who gets the help? So the process is pretty easy, and I would urge anyone who has a claim, um, you can go to the National Women's Law Center website, nwlc.org. There's a button on there to fill out a form if you need help. And if you do that, then you will be contacted by somebody from the Legal Defense Fund. They will connect you with the names of three lawyers who have all agreed to provide free consultation to you. And you get to choose. So we're complying with all the rules, arcane rules around lawyer referrals because we're not providing a referral. We're providing you with information to make your own decision. So it means that the person who needs legal help also has the agency in choosing somebody that they're comfortable with. Well, that, Laura, is an important bedrock principle of ours is that we are all about making sure that the person who needs help has that agency. That person can decide what lawyer to pick, decide whether they want to go forward or not with a claim, decide whether they want to speak out publicly or not. We also have public relations specialists on hand to help advise that. We don't want to force anyone to take a step that they do not want to do because so much of what happens around sexual harassment is that loss of power and agency. Yes. And um, fear around the exposure of it. So I just want to go back to a specific point that even though Time's Up is incredibly visible, it does not mean that your case has to be public fodder. Absolutely. I mean, we are really clear about that and would only publicize a case that a plaintiff herself or himself wants and that their lawyer also believes will be at least helpful or certainly not harmful to any legal action that they have. Um, And we're very, very careful about that. And we have had some amazing stories and people come forward, um, but we would only do that, you know, if those people, you know, want to do that. Are you able to funnel all of these requests to the point that they can select from different people to represent them? Or do you have to screen some out? Well, we've been screening out things that are not workplace harassment. Okay. So one of the things we've had to do, and it's been hard because I feel in some of those case, you know calls myself of people who have also you know horrific sexual violence that has happened to them in other settings. But just for ourselves to be able to focus our efforts, we've had to limit the work to workplace settings or people in pursuit of their careers. So as we saw even from some of the Harvey Weinstein instances, that's not actually happening in a workplace, but it is someone but trying it, to it, pursue their career. So if somebody is listening out there and they think that they know that they're experiencing something awful, they want to do something about it, they think they might be a candidate for it. Aside from, you know, going online, submitting your information, are there questions that they should contemplate in preparation for this? Well, I think they should think about, you know, is it happening in the workplace? Um, think through, you know, what kind of documentation or not you have and, and hang on to it. So if you've got emails, if you have text messages, hang on to those um, because you may need those. And, you know, but also think for yourself what it is you want to do. It's hard. This is hard. This is about people's careers. It's about your workplace. It's really hard. And I'm also here to say that nobody judges people for not coming forward. This is the one of the most underreported reported crimes. We know from the EEOC study from 2015 that three out of four victims of sexual harassment do not come forward. Right. So the numbers that we see, the people that are speaking up, they're just a percentage of what's really happening. Well, they're just the tip. They're just the tip of the iceberg of what we believe is really going on. And even that tip is pretty broad. We Of the 3,500, it's 60 different industries that are represented. Two-thirds are low-income people. Um, so it is really widespread across the board. It's across every kind of job, you know, whether it's a C-suite job or it's a shop floor job. It's happening. It's happening everywhere. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 132. I am your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Tina Chen, partner at the Chicago law firm Buckley Chandler, former chief of, chief of staff to Michelle Obama. And, you know, 
an, a lifelong activist, I think we can confidently say. Um, so one of the things that strikes me as I hear you talk about this, whether it's the right when you came out of school and you were getting involved in political activism or your time in the White House, is a very clear kind of strategic thought process. How did you develop it? <laughs> We'll talk a little more about what you do with it. But I want to know, it's it's an, a, a unique skill and a powerful skill. You know, I've never thought about that. No one's <laughs> ever asked me that question. It is. I do think very strategically. I think it's one of the things I'm able to do and and both strategically at the ground level. But I've learned, again, at the White House how to, like, elevate that and how to go to scale. And, I, and scale is something I've been thinking a lot about in the last several years is how do we make things operate at scale. I, I got to tell you, I think if I really, really unpack it, it is my legal training. You know, I was a corporate litigator at Skadden Arps for 23 years. And as a lawyer at that level, you have to be really strategic. I mean, a smart, good litigator is plotting through strategy. You take a set of facts. You have to figure out what your claims are. You got to figure out what are the strong ones and what are the weak ones. What are the ones that sell to a jury and what don't? What settlement is or isn't going to work? How you sell that to your client if that's what – I mean, there's strategy you're plotting. And I was fortunate to do it at a law firm that operates at the top of the game with the biggest cases ever. You know, when I had the good fortune in those 23 years to work on huge bet the company cases, huge mergers and acquisitions where you're making, you know, decisions that involve, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And being sharp and strategic is quite frankly something that Joe Flom and the rest of my former partners at Skadden built the firm on and really schooled me in. So when you walked in the door, how old were you? Oh, walked in the door at, at Skadden? Yeah. Oh, God, I don't even know. 20, because I didn't go straight through, so I was 27, I think. And probably. so the 27-year-old Tina. Right. Did you go in like gangbusters? Was any of it frightening? Oh, it was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, so to set the stage, you know, I'm in Chicago. It's 1984 um, when I got out of law school. In 1984, the legal market in Chicago was very closed. There were zero. It is hard to imagine right now. There were no out-of-town law firms in Chicago. Really? No. It was a very provincial, closed community. It was Kirkland and & Ellis and Winston Strawn, Mayor Brown and & Platt, some other firms that aren't around anymore <laughs> that, that were the legacy. Isham Lincoln & Beal, founded by the son of you know, so these were like Abraham Lincoln. So these were like regional white shoe law firms. And not just regional. Kirkland was a national firm. Okay. You know, I mean, these were, you know, Jenner and Block, you know, they were national firms, but housed in Chicago that were the competitors of the White and Cases and the Scaddens and the Covingtons um, elsewhere. And, and the legal market used to be like that. It was mostly, if you think about the origins of it back into mm -hmm. the, you know, um, even before the 80s, it was just big powerhouse law, law firms that developed within each region and each big city. And then gradually, starting with the New York firms, they started to expand. And at that point, that expansion had not really hit Chicago. Okay. So the Scadden guys who came in, and they came in, they started the office in May of 1983. I'm coming out of law school. Or May 1984, I come out of my clerkship, actually, in in the summer of 1985. And they're in their first year of operation, and mostly people think – I was going to go to Kirkland and Ellis, actually. I'll review <laughs> the place I was headed towards, which I loved, was Kirkland and Ellis. And the Kirkland guys were saying to me, oh, Scadden, they're not going to last. <laughs> they're, they don't do litigation. They're not going to stay. It's like it's not, no, you're not going to have out-of-towners in Chicago. And lo and behold, you know, I went into the, 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 the firm as like the 31st lawyer, I think, in the Chicago office, only the 350th lawyer at Skadden at the time. And, um, and we grew it. You know, by the time I left, it was over 200 lawyers in 2009. You know, Skadden itself obviously was, you know, number two, three, whatever it was in the world. Um, and, you know, built on, I, I have to say, you know, I revere Joe Flum because he I built... I can see it on your face. No, he built a firm that was excellence and tough as nails and dealing in the corporate world. But Joe never forgot that he came, well, his background as a hard scrabble, young Jewish lawyer, couldn't get into any downtown white shoe firms, built a firm in Midtown from scratch, you know, as a scrappy young lawyer. And, you know, when I was there, the firm was very much in that image, despite the fact that it had become this behemoth of... Always remembering to do public service and pro bono, you know, always doing excellent work for your clients um, and doing it hard and fighting hard, but doing it in a spirit of, you know, real partnership with one another. When in that process did you start to see public service as something that might speak to you? Never. 
<laughs> no, seriously, happy. I'm not kidding. Never. Uh, no, I was always, I always did politics on the side. It was my, I used to laugh and say it was like what I did instead of golf because I can't <laughs> golf and I yeah. don't garden, but totally politics now was. Now it would be called your side hustle. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, it was like completely my hobby. I had never any intention of doing it for pay. You know, um, uh, and that and, you know, women's organizations and pro bono organizations. I mean, I, when I left for the White House, I had to resign from 10 not-for-profit boards. <laughs> it was a little excessive. <laughs> I think, I'm guessing they forgave you. <laughs> right. Um, but that, no, I had no conception that I was going to do it for pay. In fact, I was kind of like the opposite. Like I had been offered other jobs to come be my, you know, run my campaign or do this. I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm never going to have my rent check come from come that. From that. Until you spoke uh, a little too soon, maybe. Well, <laughs> an offer from the White House isn't yeah. exactly like running somebody's campaign. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but it meant that this was an integral part of who you were and that you were looking at the world. Yeah. Both through your personal lens and your professional lens about how you could affect change on a big scale. Well, politics, you know, progressive politics in Chicago is like a full-on contact sport. <laughs> you know, it's it's entertaining. It's fun. You know, we did serious and big issues in Chicago. Um, and and that's how I got to know, you know, Barack and Michelle Obama was, you know, long enough ago, the three of us can't remember how we met. But <laughs> doing that work, you know, doing things like working on Harold Washington's election as the first African-American mayor in Chicago through a tremendous open hostility and race discrimination, um, you know, just, you know, tremendous stuff that we were able to accomplish at the municipal level. Um, and then just developing the kind of relationships and worldview, you know, that I was able to through it. You were sharing with us the stories of um, how you moved into uh, activism and carried that along with you while you built a serious career in the law. And then one day, these fellow activists of yours <laughs> said, get elected hey, Tina, president. I got a lady, right? <laughs> right. So. When that opportunity, you know, comes, you can't say no, not to mention you clearly loved them and admired them. Yes, yes. But how do you take on a role like that? It's hard to imagine that there are many other roles that prepare you for that. Well, nothing prepares you for working in the White House. And I used to say that all the time as we you know, brought new hires in. Um, there really, it doesn't matter what you have ever done. Um, there is no job like a job, any job in the White House. And there's no place to work. Um, there is nowhere else where everything is scrutinized, where the press that is watching you are li literally have their offices right in the building. So you're walking across and you run into them all the time, um, where even if you're what papers you're carrying, like, you know, you we were all warned and you saw it. It actually came up not that long ago where if you're. If you, if you got a piece of paper that's kind of showing underneath your arm as you're carrying it, somebody will take a picture of it and somebody will try to figure and out blow it up and see what exactly you're what, what it is. What, what's, what's in that paper. You know, it goes down to that level of scrutiny every day, 24-7, when you're coming in the building, when you're leaving the building. Um, and anything can happen anywhere in the world and you have to respond to it. And there really isn't anything that prepares anyone for that. One of the things that so many women struggle with is – um, a kind of self-confidence that it, it haunts them privately. Um, am I big enough for this? Can I do this? Mm -hmm. How do I go about this? Never mind stepping into such an enormous role with such public scrutiny. Did any of that haunt you? You know, no. I, I actually, I have to confess it didn't, mostly because I was trying to figure out how to, like, where to live and where, so to, where to get busy. my daughter into school. <laughs> you know, that maybe that's that there's a sign there is that there are, as, as a woman, actually, sometimes there are just the other things of life <laughs> that can, so that I didn't have to make myself crazy over, over the parts of the job. The, the job part actually felt easier to as compared to, okay, I've accepted this job. It's around Thanksgiving. I had this moment. I, the, my, I accepted the job around Thanksgiving. The announcement was made December 5th. It was a Friday. I had a realization that following Sunday that, oh, my God, it's winter break in two weeks. And then I have to get a, I have to be in D.C. in January with my 12-year-old sixth grader in school. It's like, holy hell, I got to find a I gotta find, both of you. I got to find a school. And so really a mad scramble the last two weeks to even go to see schools in D.C. about how to get her in. So that's, it's the practicalities of life that then take over. So the enormity of the other part of the job, like hiring staff, you know, sort of felt easy. Right, once you got there. It's funny. Sometimes that kind of stuff, it's a good warm-up for the big project right. that's coming. Right, right. How did you cope with that kind of scrutiny while still operating in an authentic way and trusting yourself? 
you know, it's hard. I mean, the scrutiny level is really hard. And even I, who kind of intellectually knew it, wasn't fully prepared. And, you know, we had a lot of missteps along the way as you learn them um, because most of us hadn't. We were we were blessed that there were several people and part of our team who had been in the Clinton White House, so knew it. But a lot of us, especially all of us who came from Chicago, had never been there. Um, and I said, although we knew the rough and tumble of Chicago politics, D.C. politics is totally different and the White House is completely different. Um, so it took us a little while to get there. Um, and we had a lot of missteps. Um, but, you know, you you learn. You learn to be able to operate at a level of detail where you're paying attention to every piece of detail and also at a pretty elevated level where you're going to do stuff that will affect the entire country or even globally. So in a role like chief of staff, there are so many things that you do that that part of the job is that a lot of people will never, ever see them. How did you come to understand the role? Uh, Good question, because it's really not a playbook. There's actually no job like it because, you know, there's I've seen people who want to become chief of staff in the private sector. And I keep saying, you know, the private sector doesn't really work like that. Right. There's no one other than maybe the chief operating officer of a company that comes close to being. But even that person has defined responsibilities and they're not the chief legal officer and they're not, you know, the communications head, you know, when you're chief of staff at that level, really everything is flowing to you. So although there was a White House counsel, you know, that person's reporting up through the president's chief of staff. You know, although I had a communications director and a press secretary, they're reporting to me and then to, through so up to the first lady. So would it be fair to say you're like the chief operating officer? You are, but even more. You're the chief <laughs> operating officer in an entity where the CEO isn't really a CEO in the sense right. that they're not they're not expected to be an operating decision maker. You really have to take things fully formed. They're a, they're a much beyond. You know, they're more like a board of directors, policy level setting kind of person. And then your communicator, they cannot be because they don't have the bandwidth to be your down in the weeds right management so person. Would it be fair to say part of what you're doing is taking a vision and a bigger mandate and figuring out the ways to implement it and make it happen? That's right. How did you build your team? Um, you and know, how many people were on your team? So we had about 20, 22, That doesn't seem like a lot for how big the scope was. It's really not. It's it's funny. You know, we had people who would do multiple jobs. I remember giving a recommendation to one of my communications team who was applying to in a private sector job as she was leaving. And I said, you know, you have to understand, you know, her title may have been press secretary, but you have whole departments to do what she was doing as a part of her job. She was developing, you know, the message. She was developing the creative. She was negotiating with, you know, the network. If we were going to go on NBC, she was preparing the briefing materials. She was doing the Q&A with the first lady. And then she was going to be our spokesperson. All right. You probably had five departments that will do everything that she does. And every one of my team was like that. And yet some of them are like, were like came to us right out of college. Oh, my and God. Spectacularly talented and capable. Re- really talented, really committed. You know, so there's something about working at a place where everybody shares the mission. And that I often say that about what I miss the most about it is I don't think I'll ever work again at a place where every person from the uniformed officer who wave you in through the gate, you know, when you first get there all the way up to the chief of staff – shared a singular mission. You know, I just remember days, for example, when it was a state visit day, everyone in the building knew, you know, that was mostly our show running it, running the logistics of it in the East Wing, but everyone knew it was our show and everyone did whatever they could to help us make sure we and the national security team put on the best state visit that we could possibly do. And, you know, and it would be like that on on any given day if it was, you know, the healthcare teams thing when it, you know, when we were in the middle of the Affordable Care Act, everyone would drop whatever it was they needed to help the healthcare team get through the hurdle that they needed to get through. Now, I'm sure that a good portion of that is just that magical element of where you're working and what you're working on and who everyone was working for. There have to also be aspects of that that are about how the team of you who were in leadership roles managed and created a culture. Well, like we say to companies, tone at the top matters. And, you know, a lot of that, it's not a given. Yes, it's the White House and, you know, people, you know, are, you know, revere the White House as an institution. But the fact that it would operate like that as opposed to, 
you know, it could also be a place where people are backbiting, where they're right. competing. Or afraid. Um, and, you know, it really, for our White House, started with tone at the top. And, you know, the way the president and Mrs. Obama conducted themselves, the way they expected us to conduct ourselves, um, were always around that, was inclusivity and mutual respect and everybody's part of a team. And the no drama Obama thing, <laughs> it's kind of for real. <laughs> it was kind of for real. So that set a tone. But for me as the manager, that made it actually easier that I was being able as then the manager to carry that message. And how did you um, cultivate the people on your team? You knew that they weren't going to stay there forever. At best, it's an eight-year gig, and a lot of them are young, and they're going to have their own cycles of moving on to their next experiences. Um, how How is mentorship approached on your team? Well, I... I, Mrs. Obama's a strong believer, as the president was in, in, in mentorship. I, I'm a strong believer in it. You know, one of the things I always made time on my schedule for, and I still do to this day, is a young person who wants some mentoring, and especially so for my staff. Um, I made a point of having one-on-one -on -one meetings periodically with all of my staff to both cover things that are going on in the office, as well as what do they want to do next. Um, we we knew that it was going to end at some point for everybody, so we encouraged everyone to actively think about what do they want to do for the next step um, and see what we could do to help them with that. Um, so that was that was a big big piece of it. And you know it's enormously rewarding for me too. You know, it, it just it's not like just another hours out of my schedule, you know, being able to have those conversations with young people um, and build that relationship that isn't just a you know, managers, you know, supervisor relationship with someone um, is is enormously rewarding. I know. It's one of my favorite things about going to work. By the way, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm talking this hour with Tina Chen, partner at the Chicago law firm Buckley Chandler, former chief of staff to Michelle Obama. So, Tina, who mentored you? Oh, did you have mentors along the way? Did you know to f seek them out? You know, I didn't, in part because you remember, Laura, I'm kind of old. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of came of age back before mentorship became like a term and a thing. Um, but I will say, you know, there were people along the way, just not because I sought them out or because there was any sort of formal mentorship, but who's helped me. You know, um, one of the women I worked for was the first woman federal judge in Chicago, Susan Getzendanner. When she stepped off the bench in, I think, 86, 87, she joined our firm um, and we practiced together. I mean, Susan's the reason I argued before the Supreme Court because she and I were doing a case together. She was the partner. I was the associate on it. But when it went to the Supreme Court, I was still an associate. And that's not. There are not very many partners who would give up a Supreme Court argument to say, "No, you're the associate. You argue it." I knew the case um, in more detail because we had tried it. I prepared more of the witnesses. I knew more of the record. But even still, most partners, most male partners, <laughs> would what? probably have taken. She had never argued in the Supreme Court before, but she let me argue it. And That's a tremendously generous. I was, and very... it's, it's both generous because she didn't take it for herself, right? And it showed an enormous amount of trust in you. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was great. It was an, I, and I argued it in the year I was up for partner. Um, we won the case and we got the call from the Supreme Court literally a week before the partnership decisions were being made. Um, people often, you know, the par some of the partners who, because it was announced at the partnership lunch that week, the week before, everybody knew partnership decisions would go to the partners. And like people are like, are you time that? <laughs> did you have a rate? And like, no, I really did not have an in with the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> be nice, but no. Right. Um, I also want to thank you personally. You just made me understand something that I never put together. I um, feel like, why didn't I know to go seek mentorship? And, right. you know, you and I are relatively the same age. Right. And um, I realized at one point that might have been that I was unmentorable. <laughs> I was a little hard-headed when I was young. Um, but also, you're bringing up that it wasn't something that a whole generation of women right. knew to seek out or provide to one another. That's right. No, it, it, you know, we didn't back then. You know, this is, you know, 80s, 90s. You know, it wasn't, you know, a, a something. It's, you know, started to get talked about, started to get analyzed as why aren't more women succeeding? What will help them succeed? Um, but it did happen informally. I had a lot of, you know, male partners. Wayne Whalen, who was the head of our office, was a tremendous supporter of mine. Flom was a supporter. You know, I mean, there are, you know, people that, you know, and so it, mentors also don't come 
you, you know, as a woman, you can only have a woman mentor. You know, I had a lot of men. No, everybody who can brought mentor. my career along. Absolutely. So I want to switch to another place where women and girls get supported, and that was through the White House Council on yeah. Women and Girls. How did you? Um, how did that? How did you determine what its priorities would be and how that would unfold? Well, again, the priorities started with the president. Um, what's more challenging was how we came to it was during the transition period um, after the election in November of 08. You know, all the different advocacy groups came to the new administration, as they always do. Here's my list of things. And the women's community was very focused on reestablishing a White House policy office on women, which had existed in the Clinton administration, had been eliminated during the Bush administration, and they wanted that reinstated. Or some other more ambitious folks wanted a cabinet post for women. <laughs> you know, and like the ones in the UK and Australia, Sweden, um, that was probably a little out of reach. Uh, we looked at it seriously, but then decided rather than to establish the policy office to create this council, um, which Valerie Jarrett was the chair, I was the executive director. It would be run out of the White House, but it would be composed of every cabinet agency and every White House policy office. And I have to say, the women's groups were not that happy when we first told them Why? about it. Well, because they said, you're, you're not going to have a staff here, and it's not going to be here, and you guys are, of course, there, but it's not the same. And we said, just give us a chance, see if it'll work. Um, because what we felt in the president's message when we signed the executive order to the um, rest of the federal government was, you know, every part of the federal government will touch the lives of women and girls. So every part of the federal government should pay attention to it. And if you had an office or even if we'd been able to do a cabinet post, mm -hmm. um, what would happen is if a women and girls issue would come up, everybody looked down at the end of the table and say, well, not my problem. It's, it's yours. So I never understood or thought about it that way. So yeah. that it, by establishing a cabinet post, it becomes another silo. Exactly. It becomes its own department. And that part of what was so brilliant in its design is it was designed to include the voices right. of all of the other departments so that change could be implemented holistically, right. really deeply integrated into society. No, so that you had the military working on integrating women into the military, within the military, because it wasn't somebody else's job. It was their job. We had the Department of Transportation, who I talk about all the time, because who thinks about transportation and women's issues, right? <laughs> but, you know, we had brilliant transportation secretaries who did things like, you know, develop programs to encourage more women to become highway engineers through the National Highway Safety Transportation Authority, um, who worked on anti-trafficking, you know, and developed programs that still continue to this day that train people in the travel industry to spot traffickers. Um, you know, so it really spread throughout. And then we did priorities. And you asked at the start of the question, what, how do we determine those? Mm -hmm. They really came from what the president's agenda was. So it was things like working families to expand our economy through making sure more women and, and minorities would succeed in the workplace. Um, violence against women, where we did a huge interagency work both to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act, but addressed, importantly, campus sexual assault right. across multiple agencies. Um, you know, worked on trafficking was a huge issue. Anti-slavery wasn't something else we, uh, you know, we organized across departments. So we set some, you know, clear administration-wide priorities, but then also worked with each agency within their agency-specific priorities. In this process, it's clear. Everybody is around the table. They're there to serve. They're on board. They're part of the team. But these are still topics that are hard for people to wrap their heads around. What did it take to help people understand them to enough of a degree that they could start to implement change? Well, you know, a lot of the process was just study, you know, information um, and understanding the, the parameters and people coming to us. You know, so, you know, you have to give a lot of credit to LGBT activists. They're the ones who brought us all of the panoply of issues around don't ask, don't tell and defensive marriage and transgender issues. Um, because we're on a campus, I should tell the story of campus sexual assault. I mean, Please we, do. you know, we issued the first Dear Colleague letter for those who are familiar with the, how that happened. You know, Title IX bans sex discrimination, you know, has, you know, on, you know, uh, federally funded schools and has now for, you know, 40, 50 years. Um, and we issued a Dear Colleague letter in 2011 that said, the ban on sex discrimination includes, and this is there's case law to say that sex discrimination um, includes sexual assault. So mm -hmm. sexual assault in an environment, sexual harassment constitutes sex discrimination. Therefore, that means colleges and universities need to have programs that combat 
not just sex discrimination in employment or in the allocation of sports dollars or education dollars, but also in combating sexual assault because Across it's a form the environment because it's a form of sex discrimination. And you know, I'll tell you, we issued it. We had a huge event with Vice President Biden, for whom this was a major priority his entire career. And then we kind of thought they'd do it. You know, the Department of Education was empowered to enforce it, as was the Department of Justice. And it was students. It was students who came forward, like the students in the Hunting Mm -hmm. Ground movie, some of those very same young women and men, as well as other students who came to us and to Secretary Duncan um, in the Department of Education and said, it's not working. They had tried to use Title IX. They had tried from some of the top universities in this country and been told things like, well, we really can't do anything. Why don't you withdraw from school this semester? And oh, by the way, we won't refund, refund your tuition either. So now you're triply victimized. Right. You know, there are a whole, you know, a whole huge raft of horror stories that we heard from these really courageous students who had the courage first to challenge their universities. And then when it didn't work, to keep at it and come to us and sit in the White House in the Department of Education and tell their stories. And that is what led us to create then the president's task force to combat um, sexual assault on students and really then led to a whole series of tools and best practices that we put out, you know, in really upping the ante for schools. We decided at that point to release the list of schools under investigation, which had previously been kept under wraps, even though we should have transparency in government. Um, we upped the increase, you know, the, the reinforcement mechanisms at the Office of Civil Rights within the Department of Education. And we started the It's On Us campaign, which I know is here at the University of Pennsylvania, because I just happily just saw some <laughs> of the posters. And It's On Us, so people can go to itsonus.org to see it, is a continuing, to this day, nationwide campaign over 500 college campuses where students are really leading the way to support victims, combat sexual assault, hold perpetrators accountable, and really change rape culture on campus. So that's where you can see this dotted line, the way that policy connects to changing culture at the local level. Well, it does, but we you can't stop at policy. So the lesson to be learned in that story is you can change policy, but if you don't flow it all the way through to the ground level, to implementation. And if you don't add to it, and you might then just change a program or two, but to really change culture, you have to engage people where they're at. So it's on us. The idea behind it was we wanted to create a national campaign, but one that could also be customizable to a campus. And so, its own culture and environment and, its and own owned culture. by its students. Exactly. And that you would have, you know, the coach of the football team or whoever is the leading, you know, and you know, celebrity on campus to do a PSA that would be resonant with the PSA that the vice president and the president are putting out. And so we had a wonderful logo designed by a great, you know, social media team that was directed toward millennials, a marketing um, company uh, mechanism who came forward and and volunteered to help us design it. So if you look at the It's On Us logo, you'll see the us is sort of a a big U and S, which is designed so that you could superimpose your school colors behind it. It's black and white. It's brilliant. It's black and white as the generic national, but everybody can put their own colors behind it, their own mascot behind it. So then it becomes your own, but you're also connected to a national campaign. We've wonderful student leaders over the last, you know, now I think going on five years that we've been doing this, who, you know, young men and as well as women who, you know, the heads of the fraternities, the heads of Greek life, the heads of the football team who have come forward to really speak movingly about how they want to support you know, victims, how they're being trained as bystanders to step in. We've had some great talent who've done some hilarious, you know, how, what, what, do you, what do you do at a campus party if something happens, you know, um, that have been, you know, just terrific. And it's and that's what's going to change culture. That's given me, you know, my best hope for the future. It really is powerful and inspiring. Um, by the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm here with the amazing Tina Chen, partner at the Chicago law firm Buckley Chandler, former chief of staff to Michelle Obama, and really force of nature. So, Tina, this last story that you shared, um, it taps into something that I want to ask you about, both personally and I think for all of us, that there are big problems that we're trying to solve together. And it can be wearying Um, Some of us have been fighting for change for our whole adult lives. Um, Others are newly awakened but may not feel powerful against what they see as the enormity of the challenges that they're trying to fix. How do you personally keep that positivity and hope alive? And what advice do you have for us? 
Well, I think I personally do because I see the changes, right? You know, there are, you know, victories along the way, um, like what we just talked about with campus sexual assault, you know, like, you know, what we've been able to accomplish with the Times of Legal Defense Fund in terms of providing people help, you know, Um, like the work I'm doing with companies right now. So in my workplace cultural compliance practice at Buckley Sandler, it's, you know, there are, you know, companies and I'm having amazing conversations with C-suite folks who are, want to, you know, want, want to change their culture, you know, um, want to extend themselves to set a culture that isn't just about, you know, adhering to the legal limits of the law, which are really low. There's a lot of bad behavior <laughs> that's not illegal, but they want to get at that. Right. You know? And we can do better than that. And we can do better and they see it. And um, they want, we just did something, you know, I'm, I'm here with you the day after I just stood up with the CEOs of you know, the five of the major hotel brands in the country through the, you know, American Hotel and Lodging Association's effort to launch an hotel industry-wide effort around panic buttons for all I saw this on staff. the news this week because they are particularly vulnerable. They are particularly vulnerable. And so this is an industry-wide effort, whether it's a small roadside inn to the largest chains like Marriott and Hyatt and Hilton, all of who CEOs who don't stand together, stood together with me at a press conference yesterday talking about not just panic buttons, but also having a people culture, so addressing culture in their for, in their companies, having anti-harassment policies, ongoing education and training, continued work with experts and advocates. A five-star promise is what the brand is that they're calling it, but it's a huge change that they're doing as an industry across the board. It's, it has an enormous effect. I'm really excited about it. But that's the kind of change I'm seeing across corporate America right now, where you know we're not going to move the public policy dial anytime real soon. But and even if we could, real sustainable change around these cultures has to come within institutions themselves. It can't all just come from the outside. So, Tina, you're here as kind of a living, breathing superhero who's making <laughs> no, big change no, happen. No. <laughs> um, and there are a lot of people out there who would like to get involved in making a difference, um, whether it's with Time's Up and right. the Legal Defense Fund or whether it's just in changing the way that policy is unfolding. Where could you suggest they send their energy? Yeah. Well, I have a couple. <laughs> Thank you for the free commercial announcement. Right. Uh, so definitely go to the National Women's Law Center website, nwlc.org. You can find out ish, uh, about the Times of Legal Defense Fund there. But you can also find out because um, the National Women's Law Center works on Title IX issues and education, discrimination and you know, violence against women. You can find out about a lot of those issues through there. You can also find out about those issues, including healthcare and women entrepreneurship, um, at another organization that we've came out of our work at the White House Council of Women and Girls, which is United State of Women. So we started the United State of Women. First summit was held in June of 2016 to really celebrate the work that we had done in the Obama administration, but more importantly, to bring together all the different groups. Because my experience was they would come to us at the White House and talk to us, but they weren't talking to each other. You know, the healthcare groups weren't talking to the, you know, the women's voter registration groups weren't talking to the violence against women groups. And we brought them all together. Uh, we've continued that work post White House um, and had had our next uh, summit just this past spring in May of, uh, of 2018 in Los Angeles with 6,000 folks. Wow. And you know, Mrs. Obama interviewed by Tracy Ellis Ross. We had, you know, several of the Larry Nassar survivors. We had, you know, women, you know, uh, uh, Toronto Burke. Um, we, of course, did a Time's Up panel. It was, you know, a whole panoply. And so, you know, United States of Women, so USOW, the United States of Women dot org is a place to go if you just want to find out about all these issues and where to go and where to plug in. That's kind of the aspect. And fantastic. And can I ask you to join me in a chorus of and make sure you register to vote? Well, and go register <laughs> register to vote and vote. And to do that, I will tell you one of my new latest projects is When We All Vote. WhenWeAllVote.org, chaired by Michelle Obama, co-chaired by people like Lynn manuel and Faith Hill and Tim McGraw. Go to that and register to vote and turn out to vote. Tina, I cannot thank you enough. This has been fantastic. And thank you for all the work you've done for the rest of us. This is Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.